Well, good morning to everyone, and uh, welcome again from, uh, greetings again from Free Grace Baptist Church in Chilliwack. We continue to, to be in prayer for, uh, for all of you, and for those further south. Um, you can turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Philippians. Our brother just read from Philippians chapter 2. A portion of what he read will be the, the main focus of this morning's preaching. I'm just going to reread a portion there, and then in the course of uh, the sermon, we'll have occasion to look at some of the language that preceded that. But when you get to Philippians 2, I'm just simply going to read the portion beginning in verse 5 and ending at verse 11. So this is Philippians 2, beginning in verse 5, once again, the word of the triune God. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name that is, which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Well, let's go to our God again in prayer. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we rejoice in your goodness to us that you've caused us to arise on another day, that you have blessed us with much goodness, with much grace and mercy and kindness. We thank you that we have the freedom to gather here to worship Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the one and only living and true God. We do pray that you bless our time now in this act of worship, the preaching of your word. We do pray that you'd help us to honor you, to rejoice in Christ, and to be resting upon the blessed promises of the gospel of your Holy Son. And we pray in his precious name. Amen. Well, Pastor Lindblad spoke well regarding something that is in view with chapter 2 here, verses 5 to 11, and that is something to do with hymnody, uh, early Christian hymnody, and also early Christian creedal reflection upon the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have uh, occasions or portions in the scriptures that capture in in miniature the entirety of the point of creation and providence, and maybe more pointedly, the, the, the entirety of the gospel, what the Bible itself is all about. In this passage, Philippians 2, 5 to 11, we have a blessed summary of the whole point of creation and providence, and, and more specifically, a summary of the whole point of the Bible, and that is Christ upon the cross working out the salvation of men. That is Christ, the Son of God, assuming our humanity to come into our lower shame and to redeem his elect, to bring his church to glory. And we have a wonderful picture of our Lord Jesus Christ set forth. And it's interesting here that this, this capturing of the doctrine of the Bible, this capturing of the doctrine of Christ is given as an example for the Philippian church to exercise humility. Now, we should know, we all know as Christians, that the work of the Lord Jesus Christ is not first and foremost simply an example. 
The work of the Lord Jesus Christ is to redeem sinners from their sins, to bring the, the, to bring the elect, to bring his church into glory by virtue of his perfect work. But very often the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, his person and his work is brought forth as an example. We can think of that letter to the Corinthians, the second epistle of Paul to the Corinthian church, where in order to engender uh, openness and liberty of giving, to excel in giving, the Apostle Paul brings forth the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ as an example of giving. The one who was rich uh, took on poverty so that we in our poverty might become rich. He sets forth the Lord Jesus Christ and his condescension as an example for forgiving. There's a very small instance in the book of Hebrews as the same author there, Paul, is exhorting the Hebrew Christians to endure suffering He says, consider him who endured much suffering, Christ, so that you might not be weary in your own when oppression and when persecution comes upon you. So the Lord Jesus Christ here is brought forth as an example. But just backing up before we land ourselves back in verses 5 to 11, notice some of the context that's leading up to this, because the context is very important. If you look at Philippians 1.27, there are orders given for the Philippian Christians to conduct themselves in a particular manner. Notice, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, this isn't to bring, uh, to, to bring conjurings of mind that Paul is, is saying that we need to conduct ourselves in a certain way in order to merit gospel blessings. Of course not. It's not by deeds of righteousness which we have done by which we are saved, but solely and alone by the deeds of the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. The deeds of righteousness performed by the Lord Jesus Christ. But the emphasis is having been saved by amazing and victorious grace, having been called from out of the darkness of sin to life and light in Jesus Christ, therefore conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of that amazing and victorious grace. He goes on, so that whether I may... Uh, Whether I come and see you or am absent, he's asking for some Christian integrity here and genuineness. I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. There is this conduct that these Philippian Christians are uh, admonished unto, encouraged unto. And the point here is that they would have unity, that they would have a church Unity And how is this unity going to be brought about? Well, the Apostle Paul will get to that. But notice, before that, there is courage instilled. So, in this one-mindedness, as one spirit, or in one spirit, as you're striving together for the faith of the gospel. And, and what does that mean, very briefly? Striving together for the faith of the gospel. That's very important. Um, as a church, we are to strive. We are to fight. We are to diligently and earnestly go about uh, our sojourn in this lower world such that we grasp, that we grip the faith of the gospel, not the subjective act of believing, not our act of believing in Christ, but the objective content of gospel truth, doctrine, that Christ Jesus, the son of the blessed triune, came into our lower shame, assuming humanity so that he might rescue and redeem his elect. So it is the objective content of the gospel 
that this church is to strive for. And the only way to do that is to be in unity. And we'll see how they achieve that unity in a moment. But notice there is some courage instilled. Verse 28, And not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. There's something in here that the Apostle Paul is saying that the very fact that these are um, engaged in adversarial conduct against you, the church at Philippi, the very fact that these are opposing the living and true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent, that is a proof of their reprobation, of their damnation, of their future judgment. Those who oppose God, those who oppose the gospel of his son, those who oppose the church, will uh, will endure the judgment of the Holy One. And not only that, but it's also proof of the salvation of these at Philippi. Their very undergoing of, uh, of persecution, their very undergoing of oppression, um, and the adversarial madness of their, uh, of their enemies is proof that they have been blessed by God. And notice this next text, this next verse rather, verse 29. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. It's an amazing verse. And it, 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 it's, the emphasis isn't upon necessarily the gift of believing in Christ, though notice that that sort of comes, I don't want to say in passing, but I'll, I'll say in passing, the point is that it's been granted to them to suffer for the name of Christ, but in saying that, uh, the Apostle Paul is stating that it's been a, a blessed gift has been given unto you, and that is your very faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So just as it has been graciously given unto you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, so it has been graciously given to you to suffer for his sake. Verse 30, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. So with this unity of the church in the background, with this unity, this striving for unity, one-mindedness in one spirit, striving for the objective content of the Christian religion, how are they to achieve that unity? Well, verses 1 to 4, verses 1 to 5 really, of Philippians 2. They are to set aside selfish ambition. They're to set aside conceit. They are ultimately to set aside pride. And they are to put on humility, like the Lord Jesus Christ himself, as we'll see in a moment. Verse 3, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. So how is this church going to exemplify unity? Or how are they going to engage in a proper Christian unity? They are to put off pride and to put on humility. And then the blessed chief exemplar of all putting on of humility, the blessed archetype of all putting on of humility is set before the Philippians as one to follow after, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then follows the, the blessed content of, uh, of creeds and hymns, the best of hymns that rehearse the glory of Christ in his condescension and in his glory, in the perfection of his work and the exaltation that follows upon the heels of that. So we have this admonition given and then we have the archetype set forth or the exemplar that simply means an excellent a, a quintessential model of something 
The admonishment is an apostolic urging unto Christ's likeness. In fact, we could call this, this section of Philippians, don't be like Adam, but be like Christ. Because it is Christ who condescended from a station uh, of highness, of loftiness, down to a station of lowliness in order that he might redeem sinners. It was Adam from a position of lowliness that sought after a position of high and loftiness, thrusting his progeny into sin and death and curse. But we have this admonition and apostolic urging unto Christ's likeness, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Lowliness of mind, not seeking selfish ambition and conceit, not being manifested or marked by or characterized by pride, but rather one who took upon himself humanity, one who condescended in humility to redeem his people from their sins. And so we want to look then, the bulk of this morning, at this archetype, at this exemplar, at the blessed language of verses 6 to 11, as Christ is set forth as an example here of condescension and humility. We want to notice first here his highly exalted dignity. When we think of the Lord Jesus Christ, we need to think about the dignity of his person, the highness, the loftiness, the the virtue, the blessedness, the glory of his person. And notice the text is moving here from a position, uh, from a high and lofty position, from the pinnacle of glory, as Calvin would say, and then to the lowest ignominy, but then a return upon the completion of Christ's mediatorial work to a high and an exalted place. But as we look at his highly exalted dignity, notice the language of the text at verse 6, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, or did not consider that equality with God something to be grasped. We have here the Apostle Paul in this text setting forth the high and lofty nature of the Son of God. And it's in order to set up the remarkable nature of his humility and to bring these Philippians to their knees, as it were, in repentance for not having put on a proper Christian humility and perhaps having been marked by too much pride. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, being in the form of God. What, what a high and heavy and glorious statement for the Bible to make concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. He is very God. He is essentially God. There are two positions that have been brought forth with regards to the language of being in the form of God. Two, two large positions in, in our tradition or notable, notable positions in our tradition. What does being in the form of God mean? Uh, one particular position states that it means the manifestation, the external manifestation of the glory of deity. Uh, the second position and the more historical position is that being in the form of God simply means the nature, the essence, or the substance of deity. And that is the position, I believe, that the Apostle Paul is setting forth here because there is a literary juxtaposition or a literary parallel in the text, form of a bondservant, which we'll get to in a few moments. Just as Christ was later in the text, in the form of man, in the actual form of man, having taken upon himself humanity, well, so too, in his pre-incarnate reality and his eternal reality, he is in the very form of God, the very nature, essence, 
and substance of the Father and the Holy Spirit. As we confess in our confession of faith in this divine and infinite being, there are three subsistences or persons, the Father, the Word, uh, the Father, the Word or Son, and the Holy Spirit of one substance, power, and eternity, each having the whole divine essence and the essence undivided. And the Son of God here, Jesus Christ, is set forth in the language as being in the form of God. And we are to see here his highly exalted position. Where, if we were to ask ourselves, what's a, there are many of them, but what's a good text in the Old Testament, for example? Because we're, we're at the vantage point, if you will, here of his pre-incarnate glory. So where could we go in our Bibles to see something uh, of his pre-incarnate glory? Well, I think a text that we could go to is Isaiah 6. Isaiah chapter 6. You know what we have, that blessed text in Isaiah 6? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. High and lofty. The the train of his robe filled the temple. Some commentators remark there that Isaiah isn't seeing a a full manifestation or a visionary experience of God manifesting himself as a regal figure, holy, but only that the hem of his robe filled the temple because that shows the glory that he cannot necessarily be contained in anything that human hands have made. So Isaiah sees the the glory of the Lord and the, the train of his robe filling the temple and he sees these angels flying and for the glory of God, they must cover their eyes with two of their wings and for the glory of the Lord, they must cover their feet with two of their wings and with the other two wings they fly and they cry out day and night holy 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 is the lord of hosts the whole earth is full of his glory what an amazing picture and when we turn to the gospel accounts what do we find there we find this language with regards to isaiah 6 in john 12 in john 12 at verse 37 we read this Citing two particular portions in the book of Isaiah, John writes, But although he had done so many signs before them, that is Christ, they did not believe in him, that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? A citation of, or a quotation of, uh, Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. Verse 39, therefore they could not believe because Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. Isaiah 6. Now notice, Isaiah 6, of course, being what we just talked about, that high and lofty one whom the angels cannot cast their eyes upon. Verse 41, these things Isaiah said when he saw his, that is Christ's, glory and spoke of him. So finding our way back to Philippians 2, when we read here this condescension text, first off taking us to the high and lofty place of Christ, being in the form of God, we are to see here that Isaiah 6 glory of the pre-incarnate Christ. Because when we get to his condescension, we are to remark humbly after so great a condescension, after so glorious a stoop, that the one who is high and lifted up whose only hem of the robe could fill the temple, nevertheless came into this lower shame to redeem his people. So we notice here in Philippians 2 his his highly exalted dignity. Not only 
his deity, his, we would want to say, his undiminished deity, as we noted, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit of one substance, power, and eternity, each having the whole divine essence, yet the essence undivided. We also want to note then his equality with the Father, because the text brings this to the fore, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, or again, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He has equality with the Father. This text, Philippians 2, was used uh, in the early church much, and um, not necessarily in the first way in which it was intended by the Apostle Paul, but in a righteous and in a glorious way. Because remember, the Apostle Paul is using this to, uh, to uh, Christ as an example, as an archetype, as a chief exemplar for humility that the Philippians might model themselves after that. But it was used in the early church, surely when exposited in that regard, but it was used as a mine of rich doctrinal truth to combat heresy in the early church. And it's still used in that way. Because this passage brings forth rich truths regarding Christ. We've already simply and quickly noted too. His undiminished deity and his equality with the Father. In fact, Chrysostom uses this text and he pictures it as a double-edged sword. Uh, for those who appreciate the, uh, the, maybe you all do, I'm just pointing to two pastors here, but for those who appreciate the early church fathers, there's a, there's a passage in Chrysostom where he, he lists about seven different heretics. He's preaching from this passage, and he lists, lists about seven different heretics. Um, and then he uses the language of Philippians 2, 6 to 11, as a sword in the arm of, a, in the hand of a warrior. And he envisions all these heretics huddling as a, as a phalanx or a, a, as an old military formation where they're, they're hiding behind shields as enemy forces are coming. Now, usually it's a strong army hiding behind shields and, and having a measure of battle cadence where they can shield attack and then come through holes and attack the enemy. Well, Chrysostom views them as hiding behind the heretics opposing the deity of Christ, opposing the equality of Christ with the Father, hiding behind these shields, and a warrior wielding Philippians 2, 6-11, coming and smashing that phalanx, that battle formation, to pieces. In other words, this text, Philippians 2, 6-11, in setting forth the glory of Christ, dashes to pieces the machinations and the evils of heretics throughout the ages. The Son of God, the blessed second of the triune God, is, has undiminished deity and is equal to the Father. There are some in our day that you may have heard or that your pastors may have noted, at least their arguments, that try to in some way subordinate the Son to the Father, try to in some way envision the Son as eternally subordinate or in some way inferior to the Father. This text dashes those arguments to pieces, and the early church through to the uh, to more recently in the ancient church speak thus regarding this particular passage and the arguments regarding the equality of the Son with the Father. Notice Ambrose, it cannot please the good Father if the Son be judged inferior rather than equal to his Father. Chrysostom, he is in no way inferior to the Father. Basil of Caesarea, ever be spoken among us with boldness that famous dogma of the Father's witch builds up the churches in the sound doctrine wherein the Son is confessed to be of one substance with the Father and the Holy Ghost is ranked and worshipped 
as of equal honor. John Owen writes, as we move forward in history, partaking of the divine essence, therefore he was equal with God, in dignity, power, and authority, which nothing could give him but only his being in the form of God. For though there is an order in the persons of the Trinity, there is no distinction or inequality in the nature of God. Everyone who is partaker of that nature is equal in that nature, in dignity, power, and authority. This was the state of Christ. And lastly, Spurgeon, any doctrine which hath not the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost as equal persons in one undivided essence, we cast aside as being unsound, for we are sure that such doctrines must be derogatory to God's glory. You see, the point point of the Apostle Paul here is to set forth first the high and lofty nature of Christ so that we can remark afterwards when he moves to the condescension how great a condescension that was. You see, if he was not equal with the Father, then how great is that condescension? In fact, it's not humility at all for one who is lesser to not seize or grasp after one who is greater than they. That's not humility. That's not humility at all. That's that's presumption. That's self-exaltation. That's the sin of Adam. The Son of God being equal with the Father Father, by virtue of being in the very form of God um, is one who exercises, uh, exercises humility by now, as we'll see here, in his condescension. The glory of the person of Christ is, of course, seen in the perfection, the, the dignity of his person, and it's seen here in his condescension. Notice this text, and we are to... We are to notice the the amazing stoop here. The Son of God undergoes for his church. Notice the language as it it moves on. Verse 7. This one who is in the form of God, this one who by virtue of that is equal with God, equal with the Father and with the Holy Spirit in the glory glory of divine glory, verse 7, made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Now, the, the, these are those times where, you know, it's a, it's a passage or it's a, it's a truth that we know as Christians. For all of us or for, for some of us who have been Christians for many years, we know the doctrine of Christ. We ought to. We know the doctrine of salvation. We know the condescension that the Son of God underwent in, um, in becoming incarnate and going about the earth doing good as man. We know our Christian doctrine, but we should never be so familiar. We should never be so removed, far removed, we might say, from having first learnt and having first wrestled and grasped these truths that we cannot repeatedly glory in them. Every time we gather as a church, uh, every time we gather as a church on the Lord's Day, that is another gathering, another blessed gift from God, where you can gather together as the people of God to rehearse the mighty works of God, to rehearse the glorious redemption wrought by Jesus Christ. So every time we land upon passages like this, we are to marvel as Christians again, just as perhaps we did that first time when grace first touched us, when we were brought out from the darkness and the the deadness of sin to life and light in Jesus Christ, to behold the Son of God who took upon himself man's nature for our recovery. 
We're to marvel every time we read about it. We're to marvel every time we hear about it. That this Son of God made himself of no reputation, taking the form of of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. What a blessed truth that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's, it's good for us to note, and it's good for us to reflect upon the fact that this making himself of no reputation or this emptying himself was not or did not a change or did not affect his deity. The, the ancients would, would often rehearse a number, of, uh, a number of objections or would battle a number of objections at this point or positions that might be taken or mistaken notions that might be taken up. And this one who's in the form of God making himself of no reputation or emptying himself, does that mean God changed? Of, of course not. God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in all of his glorious perfections. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, did not change in his undiminished deity when he took on humanity. He remained ever and always, he remains ever and always God most high, immutable, a most pure spirit without body parts and passions. The language of, uh, the language of John 1 In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word later, verse 14, became flesh and dwelt among us. That doesn't mean that deity mutated or transformed into flesh, but as we'll see in a moment, that unchanging deity in the Son of God assumed man's nature. The, the, the ancients would, all, would, would, would always say, and, and would, uh, would say often, and those who followed, such as Owen and Spurgeon, would say that he took on that which he was not, but he did not cast off that which he was. It's a repeated phrase in the ancient church, and the, our, our, reformed, uh, our reformed heritage picks that up. He took on that which he was not without casting off that which he was. He did not change in the incarnation, but rather what changed uh, had to do with the human side of things in the Son of God unchangeable, assuming to himself man's nature. If the Lord Jesus Christ in uh, as being in the form of God is consubstantial, that is of one substance with the Father, then in his assumption of our nature, he is consubstantial with us according to the manhood. The Creed of Chalcedon reads, we then, following the Holy Fathers, and we in our Reformed heritage, they didn't say that, I'm adding that, also follow that, that, all with one consent, teach men to confess, one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead, and also perfect in manhood, manhood, truly God and truly man, of a reasonable soul and body, consubstantial with us according to the manhood, in all things like unto us without sin. And isn't that what we need? Fallen in Adam, in Adam as sinners, having violated the law of God as men, we are men, we are the sons of men outside of Christ, we are the sons of Adam, justly inheriting or incurring the wrath of God, both in this life and in that which is to come. We need a human savior, we need a, man, we need a divine savior to assume our true humanity in order to save us. We needed to have one who took on not the nature of angels, but who took on the nature of the sons of Abraham in order to redeem us from our sins. The emptying in the text here, or the but made himself of no reputation, was not the divesting of his deity 
or the temporary relinquishment or setting aside of glory and attributes, but rather it was what the text says here. But made himself of no reputation, or if we take up the language of but emptied himself, it is by taking the form of a bondservant. So very briefly, and in summation, Christ did not cast off his deity because deity is immutable, it is unchangeable, it is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in all of its glorious perfections, but rather Christ emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant, that is, taking on our humanity for our redemption and for our recovery. And I know, you know, it's, it, it's hot and it's, uh, you know, it's been a long week and and man, we've got a week that has just passed and we've got a week ahead of us. But to remind us of the language of the early church, we are as Christians to grab ourselves, to attend and rouse ourselves to focus and marveling upon the Lord Jesus Christ. I, I'm wearing a, a suit up here in a, with a shirt and a tie tightened to the collar, um, but I can still smile and rejoice that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, condescended from so great a height to come to our lower shame to redeem humanity. So Christians, isn't that the cheer and the joy of our heart? You know, a lot, that we, a, a lot affects us, even as we sit in church, you know, the, our flesh, uh, the devil, the, perhaps the allure, allurements of things in the world are trying to steal away our attention, our focus trying to steal away the, the, the grip that we are to have upon ourselves, to, to pinch our inner thigh, to rouse ourselves to a solid, uninterrupted focus upon the blessed things of Holy Scripture. What, a, what an amazing capturing of gospel truth. You know that when we think about our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as I've repeated a few times, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in all of His glorious perfections. It pleased that triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for the manifestation of His glory to freely and unchangeably decree all things or foreordain all things that come to pass. And do you know that of all those things, the central thing in the decreeing of all things is what what we're looking at this morning? What is the purpose for creation and providence? What is the the purpose for the the galaxies rolling in their orbits? What is the purpose for the planets spinning in theirs? What is the purpose for time and in history? It's not for random and haphazard rollings on uh, of that time and history. It's not for anything else other than the manifestation of the glory of God, particularly and specially in the redemption wrought by Jesus Christ. So what a blessed thing that we rehearse here, that the Son of God, the second of the blessed triune, assumed our humanity, that this one being in the form of God, being equal with the Father, made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the the likeness of men. What a thing we have in our blessed Savior. We want to note, of course, then, that he really was man, because there's this juxtaposition, this contrast here. He really was God, being in the form of God, so then he really was man. He made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant. Uh, I, I wonder. That I, I love those passages in, in, in Holy Scripture that, that sometimes the early church fathers took and went in an interesting direction with them, though I don't think unrighteously. But you know that scene in Luke 24 
blessed scene where the Lord Jesus Christ in his resurrected glory appears to those disciples on the road to Emmaus. um, And then he appears to the rest of his disciples. And for, for joy and unbelief, the disciples take a while to actually believe that it really is the Lord Jesus Christ who had, who had only three days before died upon Calvary's cross. And so they're marveling. They're, they're in joy. They're found in, they're found in disbelief. What does the Lord Jesus Christ do? He says, look at me and see. First off, look at me and see. And they look at him and they see. You know, look at, look at the print of my nails. Look at the, the wound in my side, the, the wounds in my feet. It is I, the Lord Jesus Christ. And they still, for, for joy, do, do, don't believe. And so he says, handle me, touch me, and see that it is I, the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and they still have not yet arrived at this is, you know, and, and as the text said, it's partially for joy. They're rejoicing. I mean, is this, is this really, like he said, he really did rise again? Like he promised he really would appear to us and speak with us before, before his ascension? And then he finally does one more act of condescending mercy to show them that it is him. He eats broiled fish and honeycomb. There's this, there's this threefold exposition of the certainty and the veracity that that was the resurrected Christ. It's an interesting thing at this point. The early church fathers take that and they say, well, here the evangelist is, is planning for future heresies where those would deny the real humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. But God in his providence, of course, used that text to argue against those who would deny the true humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those like in the epistles to John. Remember, he is Antichrist who denies that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. That the Son of God has come in the flesh. The Lord Jesus Christ really did take to himself humanity. Augustine writes, Let us not hearken to such as say that only a human body was assumed by the word of God. Gregory of Nazianza says, let them not then begrudge us our complete salvation. Make note of that. Let them not then begrudge us our complete salvation or clothe the Savior only with bones and nerves and the portraiture of humanity. What am I trying to say here? As he says, there were heretics who were begrudging us, Christians, our complete salvation by saying that Christ only took to himself a human body. He only took flesh. Whereas the word of God sets forth and the heritage of antiquity and creedal Christianity sets forth that he took to himself body and a reasonable soul. He was like us in all points, yet without sin. He took upon himself man's nature with all the essential properties and the common infirmities thereof, and yet without sin. Why? To be our blessed Savior. Because we with bodies and reasonable souls broke the law. We fell in Adam. We violated the law of God day in and day out. We justly deserve the wrath of God both in this life and in that which is to come. And so we needed a Savior with body and reasonable soul, yet without sin, in order to serve as our substitute and bring us to God. And that's what we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice the language moves on. And being found in appearance as a man, notice, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of, the de- of death, even the death of the cross. 
You see, the the trajectory of the verse here, again, is moving from the high and lofty nature of the Son of God in His pre-incarnate glory. And remember, He doesn't leave heaven when He condescends. He isn't located in heaven and then departs, you know, uh, uh, in space and locally down to earth, relocating Himself there in earth, uh, on earth. The old boys would say, the Son of God came down from heaven without leaving heaven. He came down from heaven in such a way that without leaving heaven, he willed to be born in the virgin's womb to go about the earth doing good and to die upon the cross. He is everywhere. He is omnipresent. That is, he is immense, eternal, a most pure spirit. But he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death even the death of the cross. So it's this movement from his pre-incarnate glory to the assumption of humanity and then to the reason for his assumption of humanity into union with himself, the Son of God, and that reason is the salvation of sinners. He became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross or the cross death, even the cross death. Isn't this an amazing thing? If we simply remark that it's, a, it's, a, it's an amazing thing of condescension for the Son of God, truly God, God of God, light of light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, one in being with the Father. If it's an amazing thing for that Son of God to assume our humanity, how amazing is it that, that the reason for the assumption of our humanity is that he would be obedient to divine law, the law of his Father, and not only that, but obedient to the point of death upon the cross. What an amazing condescension. As John Gill says, uh, we are to remark the amazing stoop, the coming down nature of the Son of God, not only to assume our nature, but in that nature assumed to die upon Calvary's cross, to redeem guilty sinners from death, hell, judgment, and damnation. What a blessed thing we have in the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And there's a key word here that, that, that marks the, the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, if we may say, from, from cradle to grave. And it's the word obedience. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. You see, there's, a, there, there's something going on in this text. I noted at the beginning that we could, we could call this sermon, Don't Be Like Adam, Be Like Christ, because the example being given is uh, one who came from an exalted position, took on humility, uh, and took on a position of lowliness in order to serve his people, to serve his God, and to redeem his people. Well, the reverse was true of Adam. Adam, from a position of natural lowliness, sought an unnatural position of loftiness in self-exaltation. John Owen speaks with regards to this passage, and it's it's rich with the comparative theology of uh, Adam and Christ. Um, And he writes this, Adam, being in the form, notice the language of form, that is, the state and condition of a servant did by robbery attempt to take upon him the form of God or to make himself equal unto him. 
The Lord Christ being in the form of God, that is his essential form of the same nature with him, accounted it no robbery to be in the state and condition of God to be equal to him. But but being made in the fashion of a man, taking on him our nature, he also submitted unto the form or the state and condition of a servant therein. Now notice this language. He, Christ, had dominion over all, owed service and obedience unto none, being in the form of God and equal unto him, the condition which Adam aspired unto. But he condescended unto a state of absolute subjection and service for our recovery. This did no more belong unto him on his own account than it belonged unto Adam to be like unto God or equal to him. Wherefore it is said that he humbled himself unto it as Adam would have exalted himself unto a state of dignity which was not his due. Now that might have been hard to track with everything, but there is an essential juxtaposition between Adam and Christ here to remark after at the point of much of the text, but at this particular point, the obedience of Christ in contrast to the disobedience of Adam. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, that is Christ. Adam self-exalted himself and became disobedient to the point of death. And we in him, those outside of Christ, we in him deserving of death, we in Adam deserving of death, not only because of the fall of Adam, but also because of our own constitution as sinners, sinning every day against a high and a holy God. And so this one humbled himself, Christ humbled himself, and became obedient to the point of death, even the cross death. And this obedience, as we've noted before, and no doubt as your pastors have noted before, this obedience captures two particular key and glorious elements to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why did he humble himself? Why did he come into our lower shame? Why did he come into our lower ignominy? He came here in order to be perfectly obedient to the law of the Father. And we see that in two senses. His act of obedience unto the whole law. Adam broke the law of God. We break the law of God every day. As sinners outside of Christ, we break the law of God. As sinners with remaining corruption, we still break the law of God, though with a posture of Christian repentance and faith and seeking to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel as we move forward in this lower world. But disobedience is answered here by the perfect obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. Adam was actively disobedient to the law of God. The Lord Jesus Christ was perfect in his act of obedience to every jot and tittle of the law, and he was such in our place and in our stead. He became obedient to the point of death. And that point of death is the next aspect of the obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ, his passive obedience in his death. Upon Calvary's cross, he bears the guilt of his people. He bears the curse. He bears the wrath of God in our stead. And if we would just contemplate that for for a minute, well, if, if we could even know what the wrath of God for our sin was or looked like, we, I imagine we would drop dead. If we could contemplate in, in the smallest measure, you know, what, what the wrath of God against sinners means, as Christians, this side of amazing grace, we drop to our knees in worship before a triune God who sent 
the, who sent the Lord Jesus Christ, who sent the Son of God to take upon our humanity to redeem us from that wrath of God, if we just reflect a little bit upon our lives as sinners before grace came and brought us forth from death to life, even after grace came as Christians with that remaining corruption, we're not perfectly obedient to the law of God, not a one of us. Every day, every hour, are we, uh, are we uh, perfectly with heart, mind, soul, and strength um, leaning upon, trusting, loving the Lord our God in complete vigor, in complete rigor? Are we uh, entirely, um, perfectly, perpetually, and, and wholly obeying the law of God every day? No. So what do we need? We need this blessed one. We need this Christ, who not only perfected the law of his father, but also died as a substitute and a sacrifice for those who violated the law of his father, all those whom the father had given to him. And the text moves after the blessedness of his obedience in life and in death, that blessed work upon Calvary's cross, where remember the one who hung the stars in place was hung in place upon a tree where the old fathers would say the judge was judged, the lawmaker became the law keeper and died upon a cross to save lawbreakers. The creator of all things, the creator of the rolling spheres, died upon a cross. He perfected redemption. And then what happens? Verse 9, Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see the blessed movement of the text from the exalted nature of the throne room, from the exalted nature of pre-incarnate glory to the lowliness of con- and condescension of the Son of God assuming our humanity, entering our lower shame. Not just that, but being obedient unto the cross death. And then now, by virtue of the perfection of his glorious work, we see this picture shift back to glory. The highly exalted nature of the ascension of the Son of God. What does this this envision or what, what does this capture? It captures first that he perfectly performed what the Father sent him to do. The Father rewards him for the perfection of his mediatorial work. He did what he was sent to do. And our, our salvation rests upon that, brothers and sisters, that Christ perfected salvation, that he did what he was sent to do. What a blessed thing. He satisfied the justice of God. He satisfied uh, the work that the Father had sent him to do. He perfectly secured the salvation of a multitude which no man can number from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. The blessed thing. And, you know, as Christians, as we land our eyes upon this passage, as we hear it with our ears, uh, our hearts are to cheer. Because, yes, we glory in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, we glory in the death of the cross, the blood shed upon the cross. But isn't it a joy for the Christian to move from the crown of thorns to the crown of glory? From the reed scepter to the scepter of righteousness? as he's now rewarded for the perfection of his work. What a glorious savior that we have and what a glorious sight it is with eyes of faith to lay hold upon the Christ now exalted to the right hand of the majesty on high. Wouldn't it be glorious to be a Stephen 
We often, we often pray for, and as we should, those in chains, those throughout the world who, are, who know a persecution uh, that we know nothing of here in the, in the Western world. And we pray for those uh, who are horribly oppressed and oftentimes even unto death. And it, it, it should be our prayer that they would be something like a Stephen, that in the midst of such oppression, in the midst of such tyranny and opposition, they could, they could be like Stephen. Look, I see the Son of God, standing at the right hand of God. We can, with Christians, with eyes of faith, behold that exalted one. And so, brethren, rejoice in him. Study your Christ. Know your Christ, this one who is in perfect glory, who comes down to our lower shame, who redeems his people, and then is exalted to the right hand of the majesty on high, as often as you can. Open your Bibles, open a book, contemplate with the, those scriptures that you've written upon your hearts, reflect upon the glorious work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're in church by virtue of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can gather together here in freedom by virtue of the work of Christ and rejoice in him because he has perfect, perfected salvation uh, on our behalf. And you will, you are one, and you will be one on that great day who will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You do now, and on that great and holy day, you will with much joy and cheer in your Christian hearts rejoice in this Christ to the glory of God the Father. But you see, if you're here this morning and you're outside of Christ, this passage is to bring great terror. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. There will be a multitude of knees that will bow voluntarily by virtue of the work of God and the work of Christ on their behalf, that having been brought from the deadness of sin to life in Christ, they can bend the knee and worship and in great glory, worshiping Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and rejoicing in Christ. But you see, there will be those knees that will be bent by the force and the weight, the holiness and the justice of God. And those tongues will confess also that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, who have not believed in him and who justly deserve wrath in this life and in that which is to come. They will bend a knee and they will confess before they're cast into the lake of fire reserved for the devil and his angels. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. This one, this glorious one, came into our world, sinners to save. Came down from heaven, sinners to save. This blessed one perfected obedience in the stead of sinners. He rose again and ascended to the right hand of the majesty on high for sinners like you and I. Your only hope, your only escape, your only blessedness is found believing in this glorious one. Very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We rejoice in the message of the scriptures to the sons of men. We thank you that page after page, chapter after chapter, it points to the work of Christ, that glorious one, who perfected obedience unto the cross death, who rose again, who ascended into heaven, and whoever lives to make intercession for his people. We pray that you would help us to rejoice in Christ Help us, Lord God, to, uh, to, uh, to focus as we, as we move to these next elements of worship. We pray that our minds would be resting upon the glory of Christ, uh, that we would not, as it were, look, uh, look inwardly, uh, look for 
uh, look to the Lord's Supper as a, as a reward for our own good works or something to that effect, but that we, we would, Lord God, look to the Lord's Supper as that which remembers Christ, that our minds would be drawn as he commanded us to, to remember him, to remember his life, to remember his death, to remember his glorious resurrection. We pray that you would always give us cheerful Christian hearts as we engage in sweet contemplations of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and of the blessed Son of God who saved his people from their sins. And we pray in his name. Amen.